0: Forward Guidance is brought to you by Vanek, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about Vanek ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Andre Skiba, Managing Director and Head of U.S. Fixed Income, as well as Senior Portfolio Manager with RBC Global Asset Management. Andre, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing?
1: Uh, hello, Jack. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, I'm surviving a snowstorm here in Connecticut. So uh, it's quite an eventful day, but uh, managed to make my way uh, to the office to have a conversation with you.
0: I'm glad you did, Andre. Uh, all the work you do with the, the fixed income team, so that's bonds, you, uh, loans, all sorts of fixed income products. But I want to talk, start, uh, ask you about a world that maybe used to be a niche, but now is definitely becoming larger and larger. And that is the world of private credit. So what is private credit and and how would you characterize its rise over the past few years?
1: Yes, that's been the fastest growing part of fixed income markets uh, over the recent years. So private credit essentially is provision of debt, is lending to companies outside Of the public markets. Uh, So we're not talking about corporate bonds, we're not talking about broadly syndicated loans, we're talking about a situation where a company makes an agreement with one or two uh, lenders to um, borrow money and this space has grown tremendously. Um, The origins of the private credit space take quite a few years from where we are now, and a lot of the beginnings were driven by regulators essentially forcing banks to offload uh, exposures to smaller, less diversified companies with a lot of debt on uh, their books. In the markets, always you have innovation, so into that void step in investors who uh, started providing uh, direct lending to uh, these uh, institutions. So today when we're talking about private debt, that space includes a whole variety of investment styles. Um, There are uh, investors looking at infrastructure assets, you have distressed investors, but also one of the spaces that has been growing probably the fastest in recent years has been direct lending. So that is the space that garners a lot of attention right now, where investors uh, are drawn to potentially juicy returns. Uh, but in our opinion, that does not come without risks.
0: Why have they been drawn so, so much to, to private credit? And what are the risks that you just referenced?
1: Well, the main attraction of uh, the space is double-digit Returns. Uh, so the asset class has done uh, well in recent years. Uh, and bearing in mind that we've only really started growing, particularly in the context of direct lending in the last 5, 10 years, it's a pretty new asset class. So initially, you were getting quite a lot of really good assets at really attractive valuations for debt investors, generating those double-digit returns. That clearly is the appeal that the returns of this asset class were definitely greater than what you could obtain in public markets. If you think about it, a few years ago, when rates were much lower, it was very difficult to get any kind of return within fixed income. So, uh, to garner double digit type returns, uh, still being within fixed income, seemed quite uh, attractive. The other appeal. Of the asset class was to do with lack of mark-to-market accounting so when as an investor in a public bond securities I look at my portfolio at the end of the day I need to price those securities and provide my investors with an update of how the portfolio is doing you have price transparency so you can see whether the market has gone up or down um, in a relatively short space of time well here you have no mark-to-market. You are shielded from uh, market price fluctuations, and the only times you need to make any adjustments to your valuation is either when the security is repaid or if you have to write down the value of that security. But so far, as economic growth has been pretty robust, that has not uh, happened. So uh, for investors, this combination of lack of mark-to-market, and juicy returns uh, was difficult to ignore.
0: That makes sense. So if there's a little bit of a credit event and credit spreads widen significantly as they did close to a year ago in March uh, when Silicon Valley Bank fell, if you hold a high-yield bond or something publicly traded, that will decline in value. That has to be reflected on your portfolio. But for private credit, you can just say, oh, I bought this for $100. It's at $100. It's a $100 bond. That's what it is.
1: Spot on. And that's why we had uh, bizarre situations where, for example, I would go to speak at an investor conference uh, across the US and you would have a panel of uh, investors from across the fixed income industry speaking about their outlook for the markets. And you would have comments like, well, uh, the economic growth is uncertain. Uh, I would prefer to stay away from public high yield markets. But uh, I think that private credit is a safe space to hide, which in our opinion was borderline insane. But that lack of mark-to-market was giving people this false sense of security that since the price is not changing at all, then there's nothing wrong happening with my investment.
0: Explain why is it insane for someone to say, oh, things are risky, high
1: yield is too risky, I'm going to go into private credit. What is so wrong about that in your view? Well, if you think about what asset class we're talking about, it's leverage finance. It's higher risk debt investment. So by definition, uh, we're not talking about government bond securities or uh, investment-grade rated uh, credit. Uh, so from the get-go, the level of risk is higher than otherwise would be the case. But also, the other thing that we need to remember is how this asset class started. So with banks no longer being able to lend to smaller, less diversified companies, well, those were embraced by um, investors within a private debt space and uh, direct lending in particular. So when you're looking at those businesses, you tend to look at smaller, weaker companies uh, compared to uh, those in the public markets that tend to be larger, more able to withstand economic pressures. Uh, there's a reason why many of these companies did, did not have access to public funding. like Arguably, it's cheaper to issue debt in public markets. So if you had none of that access, well, then there's something about you that is riskier than public investors can accept. So from our perspective, when you're looking into a slowdown scenario, it's really misguided To expect that these less diversified, smaller companies that have fewer avenues to deal with an economic slowdown would be somehow doing better than uh, their counterparts in the public market. The other reason why uh, we felt that this characterization really is not close to the truth is the fact that in this higher interest rate environment, in a world where rates uh, are high. Particularly companies that are paying uh, debt uh, that is linked to floating debt, i.e. your coupon is not fixed, so you, you take whether it was LIBOR or SOFR rate plus a margin, a spread, those companies were most under pressure in recent times. So if, for example, we compare the case of the U.S. high-yield bond market, well, vast majority of companies was super proactive in 2020 and 2021, issuing debt. You even had some triple C rated companies, which is as low as it gets within high yield before a default, issuing debt with a coupon that started with uh, a number five. Well, (laughs) these days, that's almost treasury yields. So companies have been super proactive in refinancing their debt. And what it meant is that when rates did increase, when Fed hiked rates aggressively over the recent years, they weren't that bothered. Uh, they weren't bothered because they already termed out their debt. They didn't have to come to the market and lock in these higher costs of funding. Well, if you are leveraged loan or private credit company, well, then the situation is very different because with every rate hike, your cost of funding has increased. So right now, when we're looking at an average that these companies are paying in terms of their debt costs, well, we're talking about low teens in percent terms. And that is a big deal because when you think about uh, the amount of debt that these companies have on their balance sheets, excluding addbacks, industry data is suggesting six to seven times annual profits in terms of the amount of debt that they're carrying on their balance sheets. Well, when you're paying low teens in your cost of funding, and you multiply that by this kind of leverage, you end up in a situation where um, three quarters of your cash flow could go out of the door straight away just to pay your debt. And that is a problem because that means you have very little money left to pay for your capex, for capital expenditure, to deal with your working capital needs, to maybe pay some taxes uh, if you need to. So a vast majority of private debt companies right at this moment is being strangled by this high cost of debt and is barely generating any cash flow. So, especially at a time of economic uncertainty when a slowdown could well be on the cards, that creates an issue. Uh, That is a problem. That makes this space particularly vulnerable uh, compared to public markets where companies are just laughing at the fact that uh, they managed to get cost of debt at 3, 4, 5% range and now don't have to access markets. So,
0: people talking about a 15% yield on a private credit. Loan that is very juicy for the investor, but as you say, that comes with risk, and you're saying if if these loans are to entities and companies, smaller companies that have their they're leveraged six to seven times, nearly all of their operating cash flow is going to pay off pay off that debt. Is that just a handful of companies, or is that widespread
1: It's pretty widespread because when you're looking at the average margin, the average spread they're paying o- over the floating Rate, whether that's again LIBOR or or SOFR, whatever is used these days, that is a standard across the industry. Actually, you can argue that some of the recent transactions where there was a lot of competition to get these deals priced are having slightly smaller margins, but even they uh, are paying double-digit costs of uh, funding. So uh, this issue is uh, pretty widespread across the whole space, and that's why our concern relates to the fact that look if you had one or two or three companies facing these issues well then you would expect that private equity sponsors because those are the ones who are mainly the owners of companies accessing private uh, credit and direct lending in particular space that they would throw some some money at the problem help them to kick the can down the road and improve their financial stability uh, for as long as uh, rates remain high give them a bit of a lifeline but if you're looking across your whole portfolio and vast majority of your companies is paying these exorbitant costs of debt and is not generating much cash flow well then the problem becomes more acute because if the situation continues do you really have the willingness and the ability to help everyone out. And that's when problems start.
0: Very interesting. A lot of these companies are owned by private equity companies. So private credit funds are funding companies that are owned by private equity. Can you just explain that that point that you made a little bit
1: in greater detail? Uh, Yes, that's that's correct, Jack. So um, at the end of the day, a company that is run in a particularly conservative fashion doesn't have the need to run with six, seven times leverage. So that has been achieved for the purpose of improving equity returns of equity owners. And that's why when we're looking at the destination of travel for vast majority of floating debt in recent years, whether that's leveraged loan space or whether that's private credit space, that's been LBO deals where private equity was choosing these markets. Uh, to finance obligation in either leverage loan or private credit space rather than coming to public high-yield uh, markets, where generally issuers are more conservative, where the willingness of investors to accept rosy profit projections is also much more uh, limited. I mentioned earlier that uh, we're looking at the leverage within this space excluding ad backs. Well, what are ad backs? Addbacks are all the items that haven't happened yet, all the items that are not really cash uh, items that uh, owners add to the profitability of these businesses when they're marketing these transactions. So it could be a contract you haven't won yet. It could be a synergy from a M&A transaction that hasn't been realized yet. It could be a lot of goodies that look good on paper, but are not real hard cash yet so while there are legitimate ad bags that you want to consider, well if you close the transaction, mid-year to acquire a business, you know looking at pro forma numbers that include full year of that business makes sense uh, for like-for-like for like comparison. But a lot of those ad bags are much more aggressive, and uh, they're uh, hoping for outcomes that may or may not materialize. So when you're looking at leverage excluding those ad it's really high. And uh, bond markets traditionally scoffed at the idea of accepting aggressive adbacks backs uh, in a way that the leveraged loan or private credit space has accepted. So that's another reason why as a destination of travel uh, for funding more aggressive transactions, those uh, were not going to the uh, public bond space, they were going to the leveraged loan and the private credit spaces.
0: Andre, where do you think we are in the credit cycle? I, I want to know your thoughts on that. But also, whether if we have a benign uh, cycle, maybe private credit continues to do well. But if defaults start to pick up, how do you sort of see this playing out? Is there, by the way, a back test? Like what did what was the private credit industry like in 2006, seven and eight? And how did that fare?
1: Well, we don't really have much evidence regarding that because vast majority of the growth within the space happened after the global financial crisis. And even when uh, we went through pretty testy times during the COVID pandemic, that disruption was relatively quick. And also rate cuts that ensued lowered the cost of funding dramatically for issuers. So it made a lot of sense why many of the companies that would uh, hit a speed bump would get a helping hand from the owners uh, to get through that period of turbulence. So it's really not being tested in terms of a broad, longer slowdown, maybe even a recession. uh, And that's what needs to be taken into account. Like from our perspective, we don't have any dogmatic issues with the space. Uh, All we're saying is that investors who are allocating capital to uh, that part of the fixed income markets Needs to be careful and understand that this yield on offer does not come for free. There is a risk attached to that. And as you mentioned, there are economic scenarios where everything plays out fine and there are economic scenarios where it becomes more difficult. So a more benign scenario, of course, would be Federal Reserve cutting rates quite aggressively Mm -hmm. while U.S. economy uh, still growing, uh, not falling into a recession like that is what each of the private equity sponsors and each of the investors in the debt of the securities of uh, these companies is hoping to experience, that uh, we would go through this relatively short period of, of low cash flows, but things would look much brighter on the other side of the horizon. But that is one scenario. Another scenario where uh, inflation remains sticky, where Federal Reserve cannot cut rates nowhere near as aggressively as investors are hoping while at the same time the economy is uh, slowing down so almost your stagflation type uh, environment well that would be very problematic for these kind of issuers because if your starting point was very limited cash flow and then on top of that you would get hits to your ongoing profitability you would be under pressure on multiple fronts and then the outcomes could be uh, much less palatable. So there are clearly scenarios where this space will do fine and investors will be rewarded for the investments they made in those securities. However, a lot of things have to uh, work out well. A lot of things have to align for that to be the case. And our view is simply that whether you're looking at broadly syndicated loan market or uh, whether you're looking at a public bond space on a risk-adjusted basis we'd actually prefer those more liquid markets where you can reposition if you want to, rather than being stuck in a security facing the uncertainty ahead. You
0: said stuck with the security. Does that mean that if you wanted to sell a private credit loan, I mean, how would, how would you go about that? Is that more difficult?
1: It's a bilateral agreement. So uh, you're kind of stuck. If anything goes wrong, it's between the owner of the company and yourself, and maybe you have another partner that participated in these loans. So in a way, what was part of the appeal of the asset class for direct lending were you had these bilateral agreements, you could craft your own documents and make sure that you had as good a protection as possible uh, in any uh, negative scenario. Well, the, uh, the downside associated with that is when trouble hits, you kind of on your own and uh, unless your private equity uh, sponsor or whoever owns uh, that company throws you a lifeline you need to deal with uh, the balance sheet of uh, the company if it were to go uh, through restructuring uh, unlike in the public markets where you have a wide variety of investors who who could come uh, with a lifeline and uh, hope to uh, fix whatever is broken within uh, within the business. So that's the story as all this time. The less liquidity you have, the more customized uh, agreements you have, um, the more return, but also risks uh, go up uh, alongside uh, alongside that. And
0: tell us about the debt covenants, basically power given to the the lenders to say, oh, you, mu- you, you can't go over this amount of debt threshold to make sure that things don't go out of control. I think a... Frequent criticism maybe of the leveraged loan market is that a lot of those loans were covenant light loans. And one positive thing that people in the private credit community, I think, say is we actually have much stronger covenants. We can exercise control of the companies to make sure that our capital is protected. What are your thoughts on that argument?
1: That is true. And um, at the outset of the asset class, you clearly had superior docu- documentation afforded to lenders within the private credit space, but in the same way as in the broadly syndicated loan market uh, with the advent of all these COVLITE deals, the standards have fallen a lot. In the same way, those standards uh, are falling within uh, direct lending uh, space too. It always happens when a wall of money is uh, hitting an asset class, whether that's equities, whether that's fixed income, crypto, you name it, standards do fall as more and more money is chasing fewer and fewer opportunities. And here, what we have seen over the recent years is not only weakening of protections afforded within the uh, direct lending documentation, but also lowering of extra compensation you are getting uh, for investing within the asset class. Uh, If you're looking at the current yield that you're getting the current return that you're being promised within the space it's less than 200 basis points ahead of single rated leverage loans so that has shrunk uh a lot over the recent years as more and more money was competing within the space. Managers are very keen uh, to invest the funds they raised over the recent years within the space, and that is leading to weaker documentation and weaker extra compensation on offer. So yes, the documents are probably better, but when when the trouble hits at the end of the day, it's equally important how can you resolve that, whether you're on your own uh, or whether you can go to a broader uh, group of investors and look for solutions, and that 's also worth something in our opinion so the risk of a lot of the
0: deals uh, is higher, and the credit spread the the risk that the reward is a little bit lower. Tell us about this wall of money that is coming to finance private credits. Where is that wall of money coming, and is there a particular catalyst for why this is the case for example if if we were to wind the clock back three years and you would just say you know interest rates are going to go up so much i would think that would maybe actually cause money to flow out of the riskier segment and into the risk-free segment like the, the treasury market or the investment grade market not risk-free but much lower risk yet it, maybe it seems like the opposite has happened do you, do you have a theory or a reason as to why that
1: might be there are a couple of reasons uh... For that, the first one is that promise of no mark to market. The fact that you have no headache on a daily basis, you make your investments, uh you believe that you have selected good managers that will avoid the bad eggs and uh will do a lot of due diligence when selecting companies, and without any shadow of doubt, like surely there are better and weaker managers out there it's, The story is all this time so um that uh, gave people a lot of comfort that, uh, with the belief that with the right manager, the right credits being selected within those private credit portfolios, and no mark to market, uh, it's a match made in heaven. Uh, and uh, you know we have seen private credit uh, attract uh, more than two hundred billion dollars per annum uh, in uh, recent years. Like those are staggering numbers. And as I mentioned earlier in our conversation. Some of that does not relate to direct lending. It could be other perfectly legitimate uses like infrastructure investing uh, or distressed investing. But an increasing share of that money flow related to direct lending. Uh, in recent years, uh, around a half of the inflows were in uh, that space. And in a way, that was the missing link for uh, investors within more traditional. Uh, high-yield space. Because when you're looking uh, after the traumatic events of 2022, when not only stocks had a horrible time, but also fixed income had a horrible time, and uh, people were shocked with double-digit negative declines within fixed income, well, half of the money came back uh, in 2023 when it comes to investment grade. So as you rightly pointed out, people uh, wanted to get back into the space and take advantage of uh, more attractive valuations. But when you're looking at the high yield space, none of the money came back. You had outflows that were not followed by any meaningful inflows, and that continues to be the case. Where all the money has gone into has been private debt. And uh, that has been by far uh, the biggest area of demand for investors with a greater uh, risk uh, tolerance uh, in our universe.
0: Like gold did, Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more. That's vanneck.com slash hodlfg. Now, the disclosures. Investing involves risk, and you could lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin trust, also known as the trust or hodl. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. And what is the interplay between private credit and the rest of the fixed income universe? there's investment grade corporate bonds, uh high yield bonds, collateralized loan obligations, you know, other products. Are those sort of two separate spheres and you know, the two ships going in the night and they and they never meet? Where do they intersect? Like are, are private credit loans ever sold to other institutional investors? Are high yield
1: bonds ever refinanced by private credit? No one exists in a vacuum. And uh indeed, um there is a broad impact across the whole fixed income universe. Uh, through generally macro events so you know where we are in the business cycle impacts all kinds of companies no matter how strong your balance sheet or not but on a day-to-day basis the biggest tag of war that we are seeing is between the broadly syndicated leveraged loan space and private credit and here you have this curious case where leveraged loan space has been growing for years uh, it has actually outgrown the traditional high-yield bond market, uh, fueled by a lot of activity in the CLO space, and uh, leveraged loan space hit around uh, $1.5 trillion, uh, in size, and that used to be the primary destination of uh, more aggressive transactions, as we uh, spoke about earlier. Private equity sponsors like the fact that Uh, With a shorter uh, duration capital structure and a floating capital structure, it affords you more flexibility. They like the fact that the market was accepting of more aggressive adbacks. So that used to be the destination of travel for LBOs, for dividend recaps. And in recent years, as money started flowing aggressively into the private credit space, you suddenly have this situation where money needs to find a home and suddenly uh, private credit was refinancing a lot of obligations within broadly syndicated leverage loan space. So last year for the first time in ages, uh, leverage loan space actually shrunk in size. High yield bond market has been shrinking for quite some time as uh, issuers uh, chose to be quite conservative and as we mentioned earlier, managed to issue all the debt when they needed to a few years ago and had no need to come to the market. But the one that kept growing, uh, fueled by CLO growth, uh, was leveraged loan space. And now, last year, for the first time, uh, that space actually shrunk because all this money poured into private credit space meant that uh, this space was stealing deals from the leverage loan space, and uh, those were being refinanced in private credit market, all the LBO transactions were going straight into private credit market rather than leverage loan space. And this had both upsides and downsides. Like the downside is the fact that there's less activity. But the upside was uh, the fact that for some of the hairier stories, for some of the names that were more problematic from um, public market perspective to refinance, they were finding a home in the private credit space. So uh, that allowed to avoid defaults, that allowed to uh, help smooth the credit cycle. Um, and in that respect was definitely positive for leveraged loan investors where they were worried, will I be repaid on my loan? And uh, here comes the cavalry. This year, what we're seeing a lot is this tit for tat between the two markets competing for attention where we have pretty active CLO pipelines so demand for new, uh, paper within leverage leveraged loan space, but also money keeps pouring in into private credit space. And, um, and those investors are really willing and ready to uh, step into a lot of credit opportunities and snatch deals away from the leveraged loan space into private credit. So we're seeing that tit for tat pretty much on a daily basis now.
0: Wow. And what about between the leveraged loan market and the high yield bond market?
1: Those... Do speak to each other quite a bit, but generally you have a situation where um, companies that uh, have both bonds and loans within the capital structure continue to do that. And when there are periods when the leveraged loan space is struggling with absorbing the amount of deal flow, then yes, you can see some opportunity for issuers coming with senior secured bonds. Uh, into the high-yield bond market and redirecting some of that pipeline in the, into the high-yield bond space. But generally, we see the high-yield bond market continues to be mainly refinancing market. Uh, it is less a destination for new financings. Um, for new transactions whether that's M&A or dividend distributions and those are happening predominantly within the leverage loan and private credit spaces so it's an important part of the leverage finance framework but we're not seeing uh, a massive shift of investors from leverage loan to the public high yield bond market or vice versa
0: thank you so a lot of new origination is happening in the leverage loan market or in private credit High yield uh, bond market, mostly re- refinancing. I just want to highlight and make sure I got it right. That you said a lot of private credit deals are used to finance. You said LBOs, so a leverage bio, That's private equity, and then dividend recapitalization is that when basically private equity investors pay themselves a dividend by borrowing money, kind of because you know in exactly example, when Apple pays a dividend, it's it's paying it from its profits.
1: And here, this is paid from debt. So the easiest way to imagine that is. Let's imagine a company that initially offered their securities when the leverage was six times. Um, they've done well. They de to four times. And rather than staying there, they're paying themselves a distribution to go all the way back to six times. And this way, the private equity sponsor uh, is uh, repaying some of the equity check that they provided in the initial transaction, boosting their returns. So we're seeing quite a few of those distributions Uh, happening at this stage and one of the drivers of um, the market accepting that because it's less common within the bond space is the fact that uh, we had an absolute wave of uh, repricings within the leverage loan space where issuers are more confident about the economic outlook uh, and more cheered up in terms of um, you know the prospect for rate cuts have uh, decided that they could lock in lower cost of funding by renegotiating with lenders the margin, the spread that they pay on their loan obligations. Well, that is all um, you know, typical for the space. Uh, however, the volume of that was quite overwhelming. And it's not the preferred activity, as you can imagine, that in, uh, CLO investors see because the returns are getting diminished. Um, what they were craving is more new investment opportunities to put money to work in the context of new CLOs that would be originating new warehouses where they're investing. And that's why with better economic outlook, the idea of being accepting towards dividend distributions um, gained more traction. And we're seeing quite a variety of transactions where um, you have uh, those distributions um, funded by um, first lien secured loans uh, within, uh, within a variety of issuers. In the high yield bond market, it tends to be uh, much more seldom that we see this kind of activity.
0: And how does the rise of private credit affect your outlook on the leveraged loan market or on the, the high yield bond market? Does it make it less risky at least when the financing and refinancing is, is occurring? And I'll, I'll explain what I mean that let's say if the high yield bond market if defaults are would be at three percent if there was no private credit, but a third of all the deals that would default are refinanced and taken out of the high yield bond market and put into private credit, so the actual default rate is only two percent. And, and that you know, even though it may not end up well, you know, well down the line for in the short term, you know, high high yield spread should be lower, and so that's how, you know, kind of net bullish. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, I think you're spot on, Jack. So if you are forecasting a relatively benign period ahead when just a few companies have issues. Something that is pretty typical, that you know one or two, three credits have a problem. In that world, having the ability to get funding in the private credit space is really helpful uh, because that's another avenue how you can avoid a default, how you can repay these obligations. But as we discussed earlier, the issue here is Not that you have a few bad apples, is that currently you have a whole space where uh, there's barely any cash flow generation because they're being suffocating under the weight of uh, debt, uh, the cost of debt that they have to service at this time in the rate cycle. So this is the challenge that you're facing where uh, when problems are seldom Any optionality, any other pockets of the market where you can address those issues are always welcome. But if here you have more of a broader issue where if rates stay high and economy continues to slow down and suddenly uh, a lot of these companies uh, start to struggle in a more uh, visible fashion, that then becomes a broader problem, something that both the regulators and a broader set of investors will have to grapple with, because if you have an increase in a wave of restructurings within private credit, that will have implications for broader demand for leverage finance securities that that will have implications for amount of capital that can be committed in other parts of the market as this space is uh, struggling to deal with its uh, problems. so all really hangs on whether Uh, you have a broad set of problems that needs to be addressed, at which point uh, it is an issue. And it's something that will make investors lose sleep, not just within private credit, but will have ramifications outside of the space, or whether those are isolated incidents.
0: And what are you seeing in in the high yield market right now? I just have one index in front of me that says the high yield spread is 3.35%. So three hundred and thirty five basis points over the the risk free rate of treasuries back the envelope math here that would that mean that maybe like if if only three point three percent of companies defaulted you'd break even now obviously relative to treasuries obviously you you want to do more and you should pay for that risk but where where are sort of what's the default rate now in the high yield market, however you define it, and you know where do you and reasonable people have a sense of where that might be headed
1: based on our data here at Blue Bay. Uh, we are seeing default rates in the public markets in low single digits and default rates within the leveraged loan and private credit space more in low mid single digits. That is actually already quite unusual because historically the extra protection that you were afforded within uh, the um, uh, loan market or private credit space meant uh, lower defaults than you would see in the public high-yield space. But for many reasons that we discussed on this call, it is the reverse now, and it's likely to remain so, uh, given the, the risk profile of the leveraged loan and especially direct lending spaces uh, is much greater. So uh, you know, going forward, we believe that um, for high-yield bond issuers, fault outlook is pretty benign. Uh, and the main reason for that is there's kind of no maturities uh, left for this year. Uh, we have the smallest maturity wall in the high yield uh, bond space that we had in a very, very long period of time, like tiny fraction of the market. So, maturities are only starting to kick in uh, in uh, around midpoint of 2025. So, if Uh, rates do not come down, if financing conditions remain difficult, that would start becoming an issue as we traverse uh, through the year and companies are starting to deal with their current uh, liabilities, those that are less than one year to maturity. Uh, But generally speaking, right now, um, people are pretty relaxed within high yield. It also helps that companies uh, in the public high yield bond space have uh, used all the cash flows all the extra cash flows um, obtained uh, in a post-COVID uh, world, not to spend on um, share buybacks or aggressive MA, um, but actually to strengthen the balance sheet. So uh, we have close to the lowest leverage since global financial crisis within the public high-yield space. We're talking about less than four times. So when you compare that to, you know, close to six, seven times in a private credit space and maybe around six times excluding addbacks in leveraged loan space, um, that's quite a stark difference between the two. So um, we are pretty relaxed here at Blue Bay uh, in terms of the default outlook uh, for the space. However, we also recognize that that presumes the economy slows down but doesn't fall uh, into any meaningful recession uh, that's our base case scenario. And we also assume that gradually Federal Reserve can cut uh, rates. Um, but when it comes to um, private credits and leveraged loan spaces, you could easily point a scenario where, especially if this stagflation um, narrative uh, gains more traction, where the fault outlook could... Um, lead you to double-digit defaults within those portfolios. At the end of the day, if you don't generate much cash flow and you're already highly levered and your ability to refinance will be more limited uh, in this market, well, that's uh, how trouble uh, happens within leverage finance. So, um, look, uh, there are definitely more benign uh, outcomes that could well happen, as I mentioned, if rate cuts are aggressive and economy slows down but doesn't, um, do anything more ominous, that could be enough of support to steer through that for the space. But there is a pretty stark difference in the relative strength of uh, the public uh, high yield bond space and other parts of the market, which explains why the spreads within uh, high yield bond space are not super exciting. So like from our perspective, you know, some of the highest quality high yield issuers uh, within uh, the public high yield space, we really struggle to get excited about them here at Blue Bay. Like we feel that the trading at very small pickup compared to investment grade opportunities and uh, we just want to be paid more for risk. So we think it's a great time if you're an active uh, investor where uh, you look at the market and decide which are haves and which are have nots but uh, stay, stay away from kind of generic spread opportunities because those do not leave much on the table. So what are you excited about at Blue Bay? Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the macro space. So I think this is a year when uh, getting right calls in terms of direction of rates, in terms of what Federal, federal Reserve will do, uh, how economy uh, will progress, could uh, easily lead to double-digit returns in your uh, fixed-income portfolios. So we generally advise our clients gradually to move further out the duration, gradually to move away from like money market uh, investments and uh, those very safe uh, but capped, essentially, returns and be a bit more brave and uh, go further out the duration curve. Um, within credit or securitized spaces. And, uh, you know, as rate cuts do uh, happen, and we can talk about that uh, in a second, we do believe that uh, a lot of money that still has not returned to the asset class will be put to work, both in terms of U.S. domestic demand and also uh, international offshore uh, demand for uh, public U.S. uh, fixed income. At the end of the day, uh, if you can create pretty reasonable scenarios when you get to 10% type returns, both within investment rate and high yield over the coming 12 months. Uh, on a risk-adjusted basis, that is an opportunity that many investors uh, would not want to miss. But in our opinion, um, you might want to wait for a bit more clarity in terms of inflation data cooperating and the path of Fed policy to really pull Uh, The trigger, because right now we're in a little bit of a limbo um, as data is uh, not as supportive as it was even a few months ago. And you have very heavy treasury issuance ahead of us as U.S. government is uh, trying to fund its ballooning deficit.
0: Thank you. So where on the U.S. treasury curve are you most excited about? Is it in the two-year space or further out or...
1: So, look, we're not far from a point where when you're looking at five or 10-year treasuries, those start becoming really interesting. We're looking at how much the market is pricing in in terms of the rate cuts, and that has moderated a lot. So, um, you know, we were quite skeptical um, at the outset of the year when the market was pricing in 150 basis points of Uh, rate cuts and starting already in March. We were back then telling all of our clients that this is too optimistic, too good to be true, um, and the rate cuts are likely to happen around the mid-year point and less than 150 that was priced in. Well, all it took is uh, some stronger labor data and um, and like today's uh, elevated inflation print, and suddenly we are pricing in uh, less than 100 basis points of cuts this year, and uh, the first uh, cut happening in uh, June rather than March earlier in the year. So from our perspective, we, you're actually getting to a point where if you're looking at your Um, U.S. aggregate like core, core plus type investments uh, within the U.S., uh, if you choose an active manager that can navigate the space well and and pick the attractive corners and avoid the ones that don't leave much upside uh, on the table, um, this is really becoming more attractive. And especially if you hit uh, 450 on the 10-year treasury, I think there will be a clamoring of clients trying to lock that yield, uh, especially since a lot of investors felt they missed the party towards the back end of the year when we had this um, enormous rally within fixed income to levels which we felt were a bit too quickly too far, but now uh, are becoming more uh, rational. So we generally uh, suggest to investors, depending on the risk tolerance uh, uh, getting invested within either investment grade or high yield spaces. And the difference between the two is such that in high yield, uh, you are more likely to see that double digit return because in high yield, your starting yield is already quite elevated. So all it takes is a little bit of a rally within the space, avoiding defaults and just picking uh, you know the more uh, interesting corners of the market to generate that 10% return, whereas in investment grade, a few more things need to cooperate. So uh, rates need to rally. Let's say 10-year um, treasuries need to go to 4% or less, uh, and uh, you know similar kind of shifts across the curve. You need spreads to move, you know, 10-15 tighter, which are not egregious demands, but more things have to uh, cooperate to get to that 10% return from your starting point of a slightly lower yield than you have in high yield. But a lot of investors would still take that because the argument is on the risk-adjusted basis, getting 10-year treasuries around 4% in the next 12 months and having spreads a little bit tighter is not a big ask. So actually, even though this outcome is less certain than within high-yield returns, I'm happy to take that as we uh, look uh, ahead. So uh, we're having a ton of debates here, as you can imagine, uh, here at Blue Bay with uh, our clients and prospects about how to deploy capital, when to do it, and when to feel that data Uh, is evidencing that the trend for rate cuts is well uh, entrenched. Because after the last few prints, uh, the bond bulls are are getting a bit concerned that the narrative is uh, changing.
0: They are indeed. And so uh, 4.5% that you said that's a level in the 10-year where you think some people could get excited to go on the the long side. Do you have a view on sort of a long-term steady state neutral rate on the 10 year in order to like build out a, a yield curve. In other words, you know, we can, we can talk about is the first cut uh, interest rate cut by the fed going to be in May or in June, but I guess you have a view on the terminal ra- rate, like where is the, the lowest possible the fed cuts to. And basically if during the 2010s uh, the, the pretty standard curve was short end at zero and the long end a lot higher than that. How do you s- envision a normal looking curve, an upward sloping, uninverted curve uh, looking like? And, ha- and and then we'll get into how do you think we get there?
1: I think this is by far the most important question that fixed income markets are facing ahead and broadly uh, risk investors should focus on. Because there's a world of a difference if we get a few rate cuts this year and then Fed stops compared to a world when they cut this year and continue cutting quite aggressively throughout 25 and beyond because they are so much above uh, the neutral rate. And there's been a lot of economic, sorry, academic debate about where um, the neutral rate should really be. And while historically and for now, it's still the case in official projections of the Fed, um, that level of rate starts with a 2 a lot of economists, a lot of market participants are questioning whether that is still the case. And they're pointing to the fact that, well, if the natural uh, sorry, neutral rate was um, that uh, low, how come is it that after hiking as much as Federal Reserve did, economy seems to be doing uh, pretty fine and can live with that higher level of interest rates? So they are arguing that, well, Maybe the neutral level um, starts with a three, if not higher. So uh, it will be fascinating to watch as the answer to this question unfolds, are we just going to get a few rate cuts and then we stop because inflation kind of settles around 3% levels and just refuses to cooperate further? And Federal Reserve rethinks uh, what uh, should be that terminal rate uh, within uh, this uh, this cycle um, you know the proponents of the um, current uh, current perspective that is being deployed by the Fed would argue, well, things are much better than was previously the case, and you know economists would have expected a much deeper slowdown, if not a recession, with this level of rates. But the two things bail this out. Firstly, the fact that companies in the US were not firing people. Uh, There was an expectation of a meaningful spike in unemployment. And given how difficult it was to uh, find uh, labor force um, over the recent years, many, many companies decided we're not going to make layoffs. We're going to hold on to our employees, even at the expense of our margins, because finding new people to join is just so difficult, like job openings data. Uh, was actually quite telling in that respect. So one part of the argument is that this time is a bit different because uh, employers were so keen to, um, to keep uh, their staff uh, on board. And the other aspect is when so many people refinance their mortgages, when your mortgages were at, whatever, three and a half, four percent 4%, um, those people are not feeling the pain. Like the, fa- the pain is felt uh, more in the lower income groups uh, where you have exposure to credit cards, auto loans, but when you're looking at the actual data, what's been driving the resiliency of U.S. economy over the recent few years has been the spending of the middle class and more wealthy uh, consumers, and those refinanced when uh, the rates were really low. So you have those two special factors that significantly increase resiliency of the U.S. in a face of this Uh, higher rate uh, regime, which might mean that um, you you don't need to change the paradigm, but uh, we're clearly going to see more debate within the Fed. We're clearly going to see more incoming data whether inflation normalizes and allows the Fed to cut more aggressively next year. Uh, And in our opinion, inflation is likely to settle quite a bit above the 2% that uh, Fed is hoping for, which means that Whereas uh, in the past, you could see 10-year treasuries at 1.5% yield, something like that. This is less likely to happen over the coming years. Uh, so in our opinion, yields will be coming down, but it's not outside outside of the realm of possible uh, that you just settle around 3 3.5% for 10-year treasuries, and you don't go any further uh, than that. So this is probably the most important debate for fixed income investors over uh, the quarters to come, where that neutral rate is, where's the rate where the economy doesn't get better or worse and can tolerate it uh, relatively easily. uh, Because right now, there is no agreement whatsoever about what that level would be.
0: Thanks for explaining that. So three to three and a half, that's kind of the range for the tenure that you're looking at. What about the Fed funds rate? I actually, you know, I, I don't know what uh, the ter- terminal rate is now because the, the data has probably, probably ch- changed that a lot. But you, know, where do you think is the lowest rate on the Fed funds
1: cycle? Right now, market is pricing around 100 basis points this year, more than 100 basis points uh, cuts uh, next year. And we think it's perfectly plausible that Fed Fed uh, normalizes to anywhere between, you know, that two, three percent kind of range uh, and settles there. But there is a risk that inflation remains stickier, that their ability or willingness to cut aggressively will be diminished. And we had that cycle back in the 90s, uh, way before I was doing what I'm doing right now, when um all, it, all the Fed was able to do is to cut rates by about 100 basis points and then another rate hike uh, ensued after that. So uh, we will monitor uh, whether uh, there is an ability uh, for the Fed to go more aggressively or not. And all those questions about uh, where the neutral rate is, where the 10-year will trade, where the Fed funds will be are intertwined. And we will just watch uh, watch uh, data accordingly, whether indeed we're following the classic path of pretty aggressive rate cuts over the coming year, which would be a great boon to fixed income investors, or we need to uh, settle for less um, over the coming years, which at the end of the day is not the end of the world. Because in that environment, are you going to complain about getting paid 5%, um, you know, 10% kind of returns within fixed income Uh, on a go-forward basis? Probably not, but that still could have broader implications in terms of people's portfolios because the fewer rate cuts ahead, the more likely they're probably going to stay in money markets or short duration instruments rather than going further out uh, the curve. Do you have a view on the yield curve
0: steepening or or exiting inversion?
1: So yeah, we we would expect in this cycle for um, the curve to normalize. But again, Uh, it's very much contingent on continued uh, moderation in inflation. If that does not happen, uh, then uh, you have a likely scenario where investors start even worrying about the potential for rate hikes, which would pressure the front end of the curve. And that, in return, will spur fears of a more pronounced economic slowdown, uh, reducing yields further out the curve and kind of uh, fueling the inversion that we have seen uh, within, uh, within the markets uh, when you had this balancing act between too high inflation and growth fears at the same time. So our base case uh, suggests that we will normalize and cuts will be coming, uh, but uh, we need to see more incoming data that validates that because uh, January prints were not the ones that uh, Fed was hoping to see.
0: The world's leading institutional crypto conference is just a few weeks away. Digital Asset Summit London is running from March 18th to the 20th, and the lineup is absolutely stacked. Danny Masters, Mark Yusko, Dan Tapiero, Michael Howell, Joseph Wang, media go on, Goldman's going to be there, Citi, JP Morgan, BlackRock, Chainlink, A16Z, Aave, Grayscale, Brevin Howard, Bloomberg, basically everybody. So click the link in the description to see just how packed out our guest list is and use code FG10 to get 10% off your tickets. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Andre, one of the most fascinating things you said in this conversation was about the high yield maturity wall. You can I'll explain for the audience. For when credit, you know, most time a company defaults, it's because it's not because they miss an interest payment, it's because they miss the, the balloon payment at the end, the principal. And so that is the principal is due, that is the high yield maturity wall. So you're saying that the maturity of high yield is so far out in the future and probably more so than close to any time in your career. Is that is that fair to say?
1: At least for this year, yes. Companies are sleeping soundly knowing that there's barely anything they need to address this year. But as we're moving into 2025, those numbers are picking up. So from the middle of 25 onwards, um, we are seeing quite an increase in maturities. They're still manageable uh, by historical standards, but something that market will have to uh, to address. And And in fairness, if issuers were proactive uh, in um, refinancing 25, 26 maturities, that would be really welcome because the downside of companies being so busy in 2020 and 2021 is the fact that it's like crickets within primary markets within uh, high yield. So the volumes have declined dramatically uh, compared to uh, those previous years. And this year, uh, they have picked up a bit but they're still way off the pace of 2020 and 2021. And I bet you a lot of investors would gladly uh, gain exposure to new investment opportunities uh, as uh, companies uh, want to refinance. So if indeed yields start coming down and uh, management teams uh, will be pretty happy locking in more reasonable coupons, we actually could see a pickup in primary activity within high yield that should be welcomed because that will help to address that maturity wall within uh, 2025 and 2026. Um, So at the end of the day, it's really all about liquidity. If you have access to the market when you need to refinance, great. If you don't have that uh, access and the music stops playing, that creates uh, issues within uh, our universe and that's where trouble uh, starts. So for now, companies are in very good shape, leverage is low, they locked in low cost of funding in a high yield bond space, But they can't rest on the laurels laurels forever, because uh, those maturities will be eventually coming in 25 and 26, and you have to do something uh, about that. It's just that in public markets we have so many more avenues to address that when the time uh, comes than in the private space. Thanks.
0: So high yield issuance was extremely high in 2020, 2021. It you know, fell off a cliff basically in 2022 as interest rates rose up. You're saying that in it's it's picked up slightly in the month of January, but to the extent that it's still lower than it, it used to be, it's not because there's a lack of liquidity. In other words, it is an issuer's market. They have control, and if they want to issue it, they can. It's not like investors are unwilling and there's fear in the market. No, investors want to do the deals in high yield. It's just companies don't need the, the money, pretty much. Is that what you're saying?
1: That's it. That's exactly the situation. And in a way, that's what also allowed spreads in high yield to be so well behaved in a face of an economic slowdown where you just have scarcity of bonds. And um, that means that, you know, at least from our perspective, there are corners of the market to avoid where things are just too rosy. Uh, and there are other corners of the market where you have good uh, investment opportunities. Um, so for an active investor, that's still fine. But from a generic investment perspective, accepting those spreads in 300 range is not what makes people particularly excited when they think about uh, high yield.
0: Is there anything else on the credit spectrum that you are excited about? I know you like duration. We talked about you know owning long-term treasuries that benefit as interest rates decline, but you know, sounds sounds like you're not you know very enthralled with with private credit. But any
1: other products away from the corporate credit space, we also would say that there are corners of the securitized market that are looking particularly interesting. Like we've seen a lot of pain, uh, especially in the commercial real estate space, and it's been carnage in the office real estate space, uh, as it's being reminded to us on almost daily basis when you open the press. It always creates opportunities dislocation for an active investor dislocations are m- amazing because they create opportunities to buy assets at attractive valuations uh, for the benefit of your clients and um, within um, real estate space, um, while we are structurally very bearish on the office real estate like we 've seen vacancy sorry occupancy rates not recovering almost at all there are other corners of the commercial real estate whether that's um, warehouses whether that's leisure properties or some multifamily um, uh, residential uh, properties where you actually can gain access to good assets at attractive valuations and they're not exposed to some of the secular themes negative secular themes like that in office so if you are brave enough to wade into a market uh, where uh, people have lost a lot of sleep and the outlook for some corners of that market remains quite bleak, but if you're brave enough to step in and pick up uh, assets that are less exposed to those most vulnerable themes, but still at pretty attractive valuations, we do see that um, appeal within, um, across our portfolios. You just have to do a lot of uh, homework because one property on one side of the street compared to a property on the other side of the street could have completely different uh, future ahead of them. Uh, So it's a pretty labor intensive uh, work to select the bad from uh, the good.
0: Yes. And would those be maybe the riskier tranches of the commercial mortgage-backed security market? Is that what you're referencing?
1: Rather than, for example, conduits, uh, CMBS conduit market, which is a more traditional way of investing in CMBS, it would be single asset, single borrower market, where you have more clarity over who the issuer is or what type of um, underlying asset uh, you are considering. Uh, you know, here at BlueBay, we have a lot of expertise within that space, uh, but we feel that um, you know, in the conduit space it's a little bit of a gamble because you are essentially buying instruments with meaningful exposure to office real estate, where uh, you just have to bet that it's not going to be worse than you are estimating in terms of your pricing. And we think investors would find it much easier to pull the trigger on those opportunities where you're completely away from office real estate and have nothing to do with that and focus on safer areas like warehouses or industrial properties uh, rather than, uh, rather than uh, office. Mm. That's why the single asset, single borrower market within CMBS is more appealing in our opinion. How does that market uh, work? Is it
0: originated by the lender or you buy them from the CMBS? How, how does, I don't know much about
1: that. So for single asset, single borrower market, uh, they issued debt securities, you know, bonds, uh, as any other uh, CMBS issuer would. They're just not in a conduit format where you have a whole mix, of variety of different asset types, but they are tranched and you can have exposure to different uh, layers of of uh, of a mezzanine structure, depending on your risk uh, tolerance. But that space is definitely less liquid. So uh, those kind of investments, you need to be more prepared to hold for longer uh, before you realize your value. But as often is the case when market dislocation happens, that just creates medium-term opportunities. So in a more liquid markets like uh, corporate credit. Uh, you can take advantage of those pretty fast. The market tends to adjust to news uh, pretty efficiently, whereas um, in areas like CMBS, you might have to buy knowing that it could get worse before it gets better because of the broader sentiment within the space, but you should be money good on the other side of the trade. Um, So uh, for more patient investors, definitely that is something that we like. And also in the context of our US funds, Um, we allocate a smaller portion of those, for example, core plus strategies uh, to that corner of the market to make sure that we're not too outsized given the risks ahead.
0: What would you say is one of the most common mistakes that fixed income investors make in, in the market?
1: Look, I'm a fixed income investor myself. So I'm, it's difficult for me to opine how that compares between, say, fixed income versus equities. But what I see on a day-to-day uh, basis is that you do have a lot of herd mentality. Um, so you tend to to have investors following a particular theme, and everyone jumping on the same bandwagon in a similar fashion. As it was pretty much consensus at the beginning of the year that rate cuts would be starting in March, and we go as uh, as much as one fifty. So. As you can imagine, when we were speaking to our clients, some of them were skeptical of our view that it's too much, too fast, uh, and maybe now they wouldn't be saying that. Um, so uh, kind of herd mentality definitely is something we do uh, see uh, a fair amount uh, of. The other uh, issue uh, is disconnect that people make between the short-term catalyst and long-term catalysts. So for example... Uh, you can have a situation where uh, market is processing a specific uh, data release like today's with inflation data uh, that disappointed um, and could aggressively trade on the back of that. Where in reality, the key question is what you asked um, a while ago is about what does it mean for future rates? What does it mean for how far Fed can cut over the next a uh, few years because just one data print is just so much less uh important than a broader uh direction uh, of uh travel and we see way too much focus on kind of short term noise and not enough um not enough debate about like the bil- bigger building blocks um, within the market, like there 's plenty of investors who debate these issues, but in terms of day to day trading activity it 's pretty pa- pretty clear that short term factors tend uh, to uh, tend to win and the last issue that is a problem within uh, fixed income broadly, but it 's more about the nature of our uh, industry is that um, asset managers And, um, and, you know, debt investors have raised an absolute ton of money since global financial crisis. So the space has ballooned in size. And what happens when you uh, become big and bloated? Well, that means that your ability to maneuver through the markets, your ability to be nimble, your ability to source individual opportunities that make a difference in your portfolio diminishes a lot. You become a beta junkie. Uh, That's what we normally call that, where um, you just have to bet whether things go up or down or uh, bet on big kind of beta drivers of your portfolio, like investment grade versus high yield, emerging markets versus developed markets, rather than being able to express views on specific issuers, specific companies, specific securities. Uh, In our uh, view, the latter focus um, is much more valuable because... Our Blue Bay approach has always been that I've got a much better control over uh, those catalysts about working out what could be the drivers of every investment story rather than putting a crystal ball on the table and betting on, is the market going to go up or down uh, tomorrow? And the asset class has grown so much and so much money has been poured into uh, our universe that you ended up uh, with a situation when the vast majority of players are just too big, too bloated, and unable to reflect those views. And that just then exacerbates the beta moves. We overshoot during the sell-offs and we overshoot during the rallies because everyone is uh, trying to reposition at the same time and cannot be really nimble about it. And that's something that we want to avoid as much as physically possible uh, within uh, our team.
0: Andre, thank you so much for coming on Forward Guidance, sharing your views, and thank you everyone for watching.
1: Thank you so much Jack. Such a pleasure to speak to you.
0: Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com/hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust ticker HODL. Reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter where I post them
1: regularly at jackfarley96. Thanks again, until next time.